the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, here we are, five minutes after the hour of five o'clock on this Wednesday edition of Lifeline, tenth day of January. Just in case you weren't uh, keeping track, we'll <laughs> we'll be happy to do that for you. And great to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. Wow, it's going to be a busy year, as we sort of suggested on the program yesterday, and uh, we're going to spend some. Sometime later on this evening, talking about some of the um, busyness at the ballot box. As you're probably aware, Alameda County, the DA there, facing a recall uh, most recently. I think in the, about the last week, uh, the mayor of Oakland, uh, Seng Tao, is facing a potential recall as well. A lot of this tied into issues concerning being soft on crime and the lack of real diligent awareness of addressing public safety issues, certainly in Oakland, uh, you know, it's become almost a battlefield. And it isn't, uh, but every day you read stories about another business that's going out of business because they just can't afford the insurance costs, having been broken into multiple times, or customers being driven away because cars in front of the business get broken into, things of this sort. And uh, all of that, of course, uh, along with an issue that's going to impact every Californian, potentially, and that is addressing what's happening with the challenges and threats to Proposition 13 which has allowed, historically since the 1970s, many Californians, particularly retired Californians, to be able to remain in their homes and not be literally choked to death by property taxes. Well, they're looking for ways to get around all that as uh, local municipalities and counties are looking for additional sources of revenue. The state, of course, itself facing a $38 billion deficit. It's amazing how we're the wealthiest state in the union and yet these politicians want to manage the taxing side of things, but don't care at all when it comes to managing the expenditure side of the column. And many of them ran a legitimate business. They'd probably all be out of business. At any rate, we're going to talk about all that. We'll be joined by the president of communications for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, Susan Shelley. And we'll get to that conversation coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. I want to lead off with a growing issue, and apropos certainly during the month of January, as it is National Human Trafficking Awareness and Prevention Month. And, um, you know, you talk about this, some municipalities have tried to characterize this as so-called victimless crimes, that the sex trades, prostitution, things of that sort, um, uh, you know, un- unfairly target uh, the sellers. <laughs> and yet the irony is um, the sellers are the real victims. 
And quite often, by going soft on crime, we let the real perpetrators, be it the traffickers, the pimps, the johns, whatever you want to call them, uh, essentially largely men who purchase uh, sexual access to individuals, both men and women, by the way, tragically, um, they largely have been able to escape um, the frontline efforts by law enforcement because so many of these counties and cities just don't want to deal with it. Let's get some insights to the problem and most importantly, some solutions. Dr. Marcel Vanderwaad joins us, director of the Research Institute at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. And Dr. Vanderwaad, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. How widespread is this problem? I know that certainly there are big towns, big cities that will talk about issues related to um, sex trafficking crimes. Um, Certainly we know that Super Bowl, for example, tends to attract uh, huge degrees of this sort of activity. But if you look at it sort of across the landscape from border to border and coast to coast, how prevalent is this? Yeah, Craig, thanks for thanks for this opportunity to speak to you and the listeners. Look, there's not a country in the world and arguably even a city or a county in the United States where the the fingerprints and the finger and the footprints of, of sex trafficking and the overlap with prosecution and sex trade is not happening. I think the problem in and of itself, uh, because of the multi-layer complexities inherent to it, especially with sex trafficking, where you, you know, most often get victims who don't report or self-identify as victims of trafficking, and the problem doesn't lend itself to, to, to counting. So, I mean, there's a lot of statistics and numbers that goes around, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, statistics is definitely not the most uh, reliable yardstick uh, to go by. And, you know, we can safely consider this to be a problem that in many ways are systemic uh, to communities in the United States. Wow. And as I suggest, there's been, I guess, kind of a twofold approach to ignoring this problem. Uh, some that say, look, law enforcement is, is over tax. We're trying to deal with significant um, property crime, violent crimes, things of this sort for police officers to sit on a corner and wait for, uh, you know, an obvious uh, exchange to take place. It's just not uh, it's just not practical. And along with that, I think, sadly, and we've certainly seen this here in the San Francisco Bay Area where there's been arguments that, well, when we crack down on these types of crimes, unfortunately, the ones that really wind up having to pay the price uh, are the sellers, are, are the women. Yeah. And, you know, after all, they're they're just trying to make ends meet, whatever the excuse might be. And so they take the yeah. approach instead of doing something to do absolutely nothing because they're afraid they're going to punish the wrong people. In either of those approaches to this subject matter, what ends up really being the, the the ultimate impact on the true victims yeah that's and, and i think you you led you led this uh, conversation with that with that point craig and that's commendable because at the end of the day you know over the years i mean i've been in this space for the last 20 plus years and if you think at an international law and we think about the landmark international treaty that is signed by more than 150 countries there is this uh, implicit realization that persons in prostitution um, and the seamless overlap with victims of trafficking should not be 
prosecuted, should not be uh, arrested. You know, at the end of the day, we 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 realize, and it's through lived experiences of survivors and research and and evidence that um, you know, women, overwhelmingly women, and um, and uh, marginalized communities find themselves kind of demarcated to the margins of society because of acute vulnerabilities, you know, lack of education, social um, and economic circumstances, and that it's the other side of the spectrum, the demand side, sex bias, pimps, traffickers, who fundamentally prey on those vulnerabilities. And if we, if we talk, talk about the demand side of things, sex bias, which many people would refer to as Johns, that fundamentally preys on all of this. And, and they have uh, overwhelmingly uh, escaped accountability for many, many years. And I think there is, uh, you know, the scales of flipping, we see um, change around the world and locally in America where a lot of states is saying no we need to take a more just approach and Maine the the, the, um, the state of Maine has been one of the first who's kind of led with what we call the equality model where we say you know decriminalize those who are in prostitution women uh, selling sex and let's hold the demand side the men's the buyers the pimps the traffickers brothel owners accountable because that is the more just approach and at the end of the day if you think about trafficking you think about sex trafficking you know the pimps and the traffickers may be pocketing the dollars but each dollar is being paid by sex buyers and basically at the end of the day you know without the buyers with you know there would be no business so um yeah well, I've even held, I think, the, the similar position when it comes to illicit drug use. Uh, mm. Yeah, we focus a lot on trying to uh, deal with the cartels and capture drugs before they get smuggled into the country by whatever means. But, you know, the irony is um, we could set, cut off the sales if we cut off the demand. And, you know, I know some people bristle at the notion, especially in the day and an age where more and more states are seeking to legalize drug use vis-a-vis marijuana, things of that sort. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the demand for illicit drugs, which is allowing the cartels to engage in the behavior that they engage in. And if there was no demand there, they would go out of business tomorrow. And I suppose largely the same thing would be true here. If there was no demand or a significant reduction in demand, the attraction Mm -hmm. for organized crime in particular to get involved in kidnappings and sex trafficking, and we'll talk more about how all of this works in a moment, but if we could reduce the demand, it would have a significant impact on the number of victims, wouldn't it? Absolutely, and I think what we also need to just make make clear is that you know there's a very big difference between what we would refer to as kind of legalizing something and partially criminalizing or partially decriminalizing something like prostitution. What the prostitution partial criminalization or partial decriminalization would mean is, well, we don't, you know, we, we, we remove the penalties that holds people, um, you know, that prosecutes people that, that are there because of acute vulnerabilities. But at the same time, uh, Craig, we, we create off-ramps 
out of the sex trade, like where, you know, what we're seeing, uh, you know, some of the laws that people are pushing for in, in some parts of California is, you know, where we say, let's fully decriminalize the entire sex trade. Well, effectively what you're saying is, let's pave more on-ramps into it. But with uh, partial uh, criminalization, you know, the opposite, kind of helping people to exit whilst at the same time holding the right people accountable, those who buy and pimps and traffickers. But to your point, uh, absolutely. I mean, if we can create a system, and we see this working in countries like Sweden, um, uh, Northern Ireland, Ireland, France, and even Canada, and uh, there's even a move in, in the United Kingdom towards that, where we, we follow this approach, where we hold the right party accountable. Fundamentally, that has an impact in the number of people, women, children, vulnerable communities that enter the sex trade. Uh, and at the end of the day, you, we, we will be able to shrink the market uh, forces that enables and perpetuate sex trafficking. If you've just joined us, we're visiting today with Dr. Marcel Vanderwatt, director of the Research Institute at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. The month of January is National Human Trafficking Awareness and Prevention Month, and least you be of the opinion that many of these women go into this voluntarily, perhaps they don't have an education, they're desperate to make money, and this seems to be a, a easy way in which to do it, you'll be shocked when you find out the real truth. We'll get to that part of the story as our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. 520 here on this Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Joining me today is Dr. Marcel Vanderwaad, Director of the Research Institute at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. More information available on the web at endsexualexploitation.org. That's endsexualexploitation.org. Dr. Vanderwaad, as we mentioned, this is National Human Trafficking Awareness and Prevention Month, and I think as we talk about that sense of awareness, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. Uh, if you talk to the average person, they say, well, these women, who knows why they get involved in prostitution? I suppose they're lazy, they're uneducated, they think this is an easy way to make money. You often hear these kinds of, of um, explanations as to why people think this kind of um, behavior exists out there, but what's the real truth? What's the real story behind what, quote-unquote, motivates individuals to get involved in sex trade? Yeah, well, Craig, as, as we mentioned earlier on, I mean, there's, you know, what we identify in probably every single case is some form of acute vulnerability that that is identified by a, a trafficker, somebody that, that, that grooms a, a victim into um, you know in, in actually falling a victim to the to the sex trade and you know I, I just one example I've you know once in a in a, some kind of an undercover role I, I had a conversation with a, a trafficker in a bar once you know and he showed me on his phone obviously a lot of a lot of the the, the recruitment tactics and the grooming tactics has moved online um, targeting you know uh, children uh, vulnerable uh, youth etc and and this guy literally showed me 74 people that is currently in the process of grooming you know and he still mentioned three or four of them that he's got meetings set up for the for the for the next week um, and 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 so there's a lot of a lot of misconceptions and I think it's to understand that you know uh, entry points are uh, you know things like uh, it, 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 
drug addiction could be one of them, you know, being homeless, uh, seeking, um, you know, seeking, uh, you know, kind of a, a relationship, you know, and you've got these people that are able to identify those different nodes of vulnerabilities and, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, kind of that, that f- f- going into a process of, of meeting in the real world and, and people finding themselves um, in situations of, of dead bondage often, you know, where some form of agreement uh, of of a, a work opportunity has been negotiated and suddenly, you know, there's all of these debts that needs to be repaid and and then because of a, a situation of subjugation and, and structured agency being exploited in, in the sex trade, you know, and, uh, you know, the evidence is overwhelming that there's an enormous demand, demand for women, for children at an even very, very young ages. And, and it's, a, it's a vicious um, vortex, you know, of uh, supply, demand and these undercurrents of economic activity that that draws people into this but again you know vulnerability is a common denominator in all of these we hear the term trafficking and i think there are some people whose minds tend to sort of box that into a definition of of trafficking like drug trafficking has something to do with crossing borders things of this sort but as you look at the profile of the average individual that gets pulled into this vortex, um, what does some of the research, uh, Dr. Vanderwatt, show in terms of the number of, for example, individuals that might be classified by family as a runaway um, mm-hmm. or just, you know, well, he graduated from high school, she graduated from high school and went to go sow their wild oats and went to the big city and, you know, we're disenfranchised, we're disconnected. So we don't really hear from our son, our daughter, and there's an assumption that they're doing okay. But do we find large numbers of cases of runaways or just disappeared individuals that, in fact, might go to another city, might wind up getting pulled in because they're they're desperate to to try to survive, maybe even get lured in through things like promises of of uh, jobs in the porn industry or uh, mm-hmm. promises of drugs, things of this sort. Well, absolutely, and that's usually how these cases present themselves initially, right, before the constellation of circumstances and the mosaic of evidence are on the table. And, um, and I mean, those especially, you know, runaways and kind of broken homes and, um, you know, and I think the, the, the thing to remember here is that it's your pimps and your traffickers and the sex buyers that's constantly scouting for these vulnerable communities and vulnerable uh, and individuals. And it's usually, whether it's a missing person or kind of a spontaneous stop and questioning by a law enforcement official on the street, it could be a, a stop and search, it could be a roadblock where a car's being kind of pulled over. And it's only post facto where all of the details emerges and then the the story kind of gets pieced together and you realize that uh, the, the presuppositions or what people thought the, 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 the situation was with a specific child or an adult um, is not entirely what it, what it, what it played out of, you know, and that only comes to the table once law enforcement has done their work or, you know, when a person, a vulnerable person like that goes for direct services, it could even be at a hospital where a nurse 
pieces together while you know what there there may be linguistic isolation a person a victim might not be able to speak a specific language or there's a third party answering on behalf of a victim who uh, who might be uh, fearful to respond um, so it's all these things that comes together and you know we often talk about the, the indicators of human trafficking and the ways that we identify it and then once all of these things come together we realize well this is actually a case of of trafficking but I think all of the above all the issues that you've mentioned are, are just some of those acute vulnerabilities and always remembering that you do have people that see profit in all of this and that do scout around and that do groom and that do recruit and ultimately exploit and then just to the issue of human trafficking the definition comes down to the use of fraud um, force fraud and coercion to obtain some form of labor or commercial sex acts and there are millions and millions of people around the world um, that do fall uh, prey and victim to this crime the big question, I guess, at the end of the day, Dr. Vanderwaad, is, is this. Given the fact that, as we suggested in our opening comments, that there seems to be an ever-increasing sort of a decriminalized legal environment that looks the other way, sometimes even goes as far yeah. as legalizing brothels, the, the way the state of Nevada, for example, does. And, yeah. and you know, with, with this behavior being, if not outright condoned, at least being ignored, what is the answer? Do, do we need to be urging government and the authorities and and leadership both at the the, the local municipality as well as at the state and federal level to start strengthening laws and start um, seriously looking at arresting and jailing in particular as we've been discussing today those that are that are the, the on the buyer end of this yeah. Well, the crazy thing is, Craig, the laws, overwhelmingly, the laws are there. The situation throughout that we are seeing in many states is that a, a system or a de facto decriminalized system is what uh, is, is, is finding its roots and where laws are just simply not... Um, not um, enforced, you know, or, you know, where there's clear tactics and law enforcement tactics that can be employed, but they are simply not being employed. And there's a, there's a variety of reasons why that happens. It could be political will, it could be pressure groups, it could be the, you know, the almost like the metastasizing of this ideological idea of let's, let's push for full decriminalization. And there's a lot of lobbying and a lot of money that's being uh, that's being thrown into this so i think the the messaging is simple i mean we need to hold sex buyers uh, accountable when we talk about sex trafficking and prostitution we need to hold the buyers accountable there are incredible examples out there of best practices we've documented we've just completed a three-year research study where we've documented that at least 15 demand reduction tactics that must not could or should it must be employed and those include from your historical reverse things or web-based reverse things two things like identity disclosure you know one of the things from research that we've learned from sex buyers is something that they fear and they dread viscerally is their actions to become known to a significant other a spouse an employer that is identity disclosure. Then you've got loss of employment. Like once a person is arrested, law enforcement immediately informs the employer of the fact that an employee has been caught 
or arrested for sex buying. We are also seeing incredible tactics where artificial intelligence are being employed and scaled en masse to target sex buying at the point of purchase online, you know, where we've got uh, artificial intelligence chatbots that strikes up conversations uh, with, with sexual predators online. And as soon as the criminal intent becomes known, you've got law enforcement office, officers who can take over that conversation and ultimately arrest uh, sex buyers um, Pimps and traffickers, for that matter. So the point is, you know, um, innovative tactics and law enforcement tactics and even tactics where NGOs and civil society becomes involved. You know, we had the, the old John schools that started off in San Francisco many years ago, but also neighborhood watches and, and, and education programs where the community is being educated in terms of what is a just approach to this and where this message is just very strengthened, you know, people are not there to be bought, and there is criminal penalties. Just on the criminal penalty side, you know, uh, the Human Trafficking Institute Federal um, uh, Human Trafficking Report is, is released annually, and there are stiff penalties for sex buyers. I think the average uh, the average penalty for sex bias being sentenced are 148 months in prison for federal sex trafficking crimes. And that is definitely not a, a slap on the wrist. So I think it's, it's part of it is a messaging and educating men and society at large that there is a penalty for these crimes. But on the other side, for politicians, policymakers to say these needs to be, uh, uh, you know, employed. You know, yeah. we cannot allow a de facto situation to take place in our neighborhoods and cities and counties. And it really becomes then, as you're suggesting, Dr. Vanderwatt, a, a multifaceted approach to this. And, you know, we need to be clear. When we talk about sex trafficking, we're really talking about sex slavery. And I think that word is apropos under these circumstances. Uh, for the longest time, we've had, for example, those that get arrested and convicted for uh, being sex offenders uh, have to register. Maybe a sex buyer's registry ought to be created as well. If there is the staying of not only jail time, but also the embarrassment up to and including loss of civil position, loss of community position, loss of employment. And we can do this to put a sting into engaging in this kind of behavior. Uh, maybe we can go a long way toward taking a serious bite out of sexual exploitation and what, as I said a moment ago, essentially sex slavery. Dr. Marcel Vanderwaad, Director of the Research Institute at the National Center on Ex Sexual Exploitation. We appreciate your time today. More information available on the web at endsexualexploitation.org. That's endsexualexploitation.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, it's going to be a busy election year, as you're probably already getting the general idea of. In addition to, of course, the general election for um, the highest office in the land in November, we've got some other things coming up in Alameda. They're facing a uh, recall there for the Alameda DA for being soft on crime. The Oakland mayor now apparently soon to perhaps join that recall list for similar reasons, just runaway crime 
crime in the city of Oakland. One of the other issues, though, that's on the ballot, um, hopefully, and we're going to get details on that in a moment, that will address a potential threat to every single Californian. Really, uh, almost the notion that as municipalities and even the state uh, struggles to try and close budget gaps, and of course, they never want to control spending, they just want to control the income. California statewide facing a $38 billion budget shortfall. And as local municipalities and counties zero in on options to try to raise more money locally, one of the biggest areas that they see as potentially vulnerable is your wallet and specifically your property taxes. Let's get more about this. We're joined by Susan Shelley, President of Communications for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. Susan, Happy New Year to you. Great to have you back again. And give us a bit of an update. First, for somebody that maybe has not been paying attention or maybe is recently relocated to California, is not aware of California's Proposition 13 and the direct attack on it. Give us a bit of an update as to what 13 is and what the attack is. Well, Proposition 13 was passed in 1978 at a time very much like this when property values were being pushed to the sky. Every year it was going up as much as 22% one year. The property values were going up, and at that time, property taxes were based on the market value of your home, and the tax rate was as high as 3% in some areas. It was 2.67% average. So your property tax every year on your home was 2.67% average of the market value of your home every year. People could not pay it. It was crushing everybody. The legislature was happy. They were raking in all this money. It was just rolling in. They didn't have to vote on anything. It just came pouring into the state treasury. Well, there came a point where Howard Jarvis collected signatures for Prop 13, put it on the ballot, and it passed overwhelmingly. And what it did was cap the amount that your assessed value could go up at 2% a year. So if the market value went up 22%, your assessed value went up 2%. And it cut the tax rate statewide to 1%. So instead of 3% in some places, boom, down to 1%. And that stabilized everybody. And that has been under threat from government officials ever since. Because it's in the Constitution, it can't be changed without a vote of the people. So it's been the effort of government officials to find little ways to hack at it and trick people into erasing it. And also in the courts, they've tried to erase it by reinterpreting some of the parts of it, which is very concerning because in addition to cutting property taxes, Prop 13 made it harder to raise other taxes. And this is the part that the courts have been attacking. You know, one of the other things that I think is very disconcerting is the notion that uh, part of this attack is an attempt to try and change the threshold to to increase taxes. And you people say, well, you know, so long as it's a majority, well, why, why shouldn't that be sufficient? But but here's the problem. When we've seen municipality after municipality pull this trick, they won't touch things like retirement plans, um, union public employee compensation plans, things of this sort, uh, what they'll tell you is, well, there's a budget shortfall, and if we don't raise X number of dollars by some means, taxation, that we're going to have to reduce, insert name here, police spending, fire spending, uh, cut back on schools. I mean, these are always kind of the scare tactics that are used. And so having a higher threshold to pass 
uh, tax increases has been very helpful because oftentimes, and we all do it, we get busy, we know we have to go and vote. It comes down to Monday night before the Tuesday. We go through this huge pamphlet. We don't understand three-quarters of what this stuff is, so we take it in with us into the ballot box, and we tick off the boxes, and we vote for stuff. Oftentimes, the language in, in a proposition can be very confusing, and before you know it, you thought you were voting against the tax increase. Instead, you voted for it. So having a higher threshold has been very helpful, but they'd like to do away with that, too. Exactly. So the uh, Prop 13 said that for local taxes, they have to go on the ballot and they must get a two-thirds vote. And just a few years later, the courts sort of erased that. And they said, well, if it's a general tax, it needs a simple majority. It's only if it's a special tax for something specific, that's how they interpreted it, then it needs two-thirds. Well, Anytime the legislatures want to, and the city councils, the board of supervisors, the special districts, anytime they want to, they can put a general tax on the ballot. I guess not the special districts, that would be different. But the city council can put something on the ballot for a general tax and pass it with a simple majority. But they don't want to do that because voters won't say yes, because they don't trust the politicians. So what the, what the city councils want to do is say, well, this is just for police, and then it will need a two-thirds vote. So what is happening now is the courts have said if a citizen's initiative seeks to raise taxes instead of a city council, maybe it only needs a simple majority. And the appellate courts have upheld this, even though it's based on just sort of an offhand comment in a Supreme Court case, and the Supreme Court has refused to take it up again. So the appellate rulings have said a simple majority is enough if it's a citizen's initiative to raise taxes. Well, who stands in front of the supermarket collecting signatures to raise taxes? The people who are going to get the money are the ones who are doing that. So you're seeing the public employee unions, the contractors who get the big contracts to build things with your money, the nonprofit organizations that get the contracts for homelessness services and have six-figure salaries for their executives. These are the groups that are trying to raise your taxes with a so-called citizens initiative. And this will be stopped by the Taxpayer Protection Act, which is set to be on the ballot in November of 2024. It puts back the two-thirds, no matter how these things get on the ballot, and closes that loophole. And the governments are so upset, the city governments and the governor and the legislature are so upset that they are suing to have it taken off the ballot, which is insane because it's a duly qualified initiative, more than a million signatures, to put that on the ballot next November. And they're suing to have it taken off because essentially they don't like it. They say it's going to make it too hard to raise taxes. Well, yes, that's the point. Yeah, and sadly, as I as I alluded to in my opening remarks, a big part of the emphasis here is always what can they do to raise more revenue, not what they can do to manage out of control spending or to try and figure out where the leaks are and plug them. I mean, we've talked about this for long time, listeners, about what's been going on in the the East Bay City of Union City over the last uh, many months. You know, trying to put in recreational marijuana pot stores in residential neighborhoods because they see it as a great opportunity for lots of additional windfall tax revenue, never mind the crime that comes with it, never mind the threat to quiet enjoyment uh, of the neighborhood, never mind the potential threat to uh, to young children or senior citizens who live nearby. The city council largely could care less about such matters. They just want their tax dollars. Why? Because they want to make sure that there's going to be enough money for the retirement plan there, and they don't want to be called to task to try to better 
manage the expenditures. They just want to raise all the money that they possibly can on the front end. It doesn't matter who it harms in the process, in the case of Union City, or in the case of many of these municipalities across the state, it doesn't matter who it harms financially. Proposition 13 has allowed an overwhelming percentage of retirees in particular in our state to be able to retire comfortably in their own homes rather than facing the threat of being taxed out of their own homes. Proposition 13 was the protection that has looked after, in particular, our most vulnerable communities in California. And of course, now that's where they've actually put the bullseye on the very proposition that has protected so many Californians. All right, we're going to get an update as to where things stand and how you can help. Coming up next is our conversation with Susan Shelley, President of Communications for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, continues. Should you be afraid? Should you be nervous? Should you be paying attention? You'd better be, because you know what? It's all going to come out of your wallet, and the ones that will be hurt will be your family. Keep listening. Details around the corner. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with Susan Shelley, President of Communications for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. More information, by the way, available on the web at hjta.org. That's hjta, think Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, hjta.org. Susan, give us an update as to where things stand as of today. Well, on the November ballot, there will be a measure that is now known as ACA-1. Sometime this summer, it'll get a proposition number. And what that does is it cuts the two-thirds vote to pass local taxes down to 55% if they are for infrastructure or affordable housing. And that's going to be just about everything. So if that were to pass, then what that means is that every time the local government wants to pour a puddle of concrete next to a pay raise, it's only going to take a 55% vote to approve it. So that could raise your taxes after every election. And the affordable housing part of it, as we know, all the government agencies want to build housing. They think that's the only solution to the situation of homeless encampments on the sidewalk. They want you to pay for more housing, even though that's a failed strategy so far in Los Angeles, I can tell you that. But that's what they want. So those taxes would also pass, not with two-thirds, but with just 55%. So that's a very, very costly measure, and I hope the voters defeat it next November. Yeah, and you know, we need to be just really engaged in a, a education and outreach campaign as greatly as we can, because, you know, for example, you say, well, we're going to make this adjustment, but it's only going to impact things like affordable housing and infrastructure. I think, well, that's okay. You know, we, we need roads. We need electric lights. We need water. We need sewers. Not realizing that I think the language, as, as I recall from the last time we spoke just before the holidays, uh, within ACA1 essentially leaves it wide open, meaning that there's not a real strong or tight-fitting definition to what they mean by infrastructure so it could eventually it could essentially be just a catch all couldn't it you're exactly right. But there is some good news, and that is that the repeal the death tax campaign is going very well. We're getting close to the deadline, and petitions are pouring in. It is not too late. Everyone can go to repealthedeathtax.com and get the petition and sign it to reverse that huge tax increase on inherited property that we call the death tax. And that is really important. 
And I want to explain for listeners. In fact, I, I, I talked to a gentleman. Uh, this is probably a week or two before Christmas, and we got into a conversation about the issue related to Proposition 13. And uh, he happened to comment that his mother had recently passed away and he had inherited her home. And I said, well, have you gotten your uh, your sympathy card from the county yet? Oh, what do you mean? I said, well, you're going to be getting a notice soon if it hasn't already been sent informing you that you have 364 days as of mom's date of death to move into that house and claim it as your own or the step up in uh, basis for the, the value of the property is going to go from whatever her tax basis was to whatever it would be currently evaluated at. I said, how long has she lived in the home? Oh, it's a home in Daly City and she's lived there 25 years. I said, uh-oh, look out. You're going to be in for a big wallop of a tax bill. So you mean to tell me that I have to move in? I said, well, that's the new law that was passed here in California through a little bit of political sleight of hand and a lot of uh, lobbying efforts by the um, California state uh, real estate brokers. And it, it's tragic, uh, Susan, because so many families are completely unaware of this and so many families that are looking forward to that, that, that inherited family financial legacy to put kids through college to secure their own financial future, completely unaware of the surprise that is coming. They thought, oh, if a mom or dad dies or a grandparent gives a home to a grandchild, that they are saved from a step up in basis. But that is not true. You're exactly right. Now, every property that's inherited is reassessed to current market value. And there is a slight property tax break if it was parents' principal residence and it becomes the child's principal residence within one year. But other than that, and that's even capped. So that, that gives you a protection for a million dollars of extra value. But you know what? In parts of California, some of these homes are selling for $2 million, and that's not enough. Everyone will still get a tax increase, even if they move in. So this is crushing people, wrecking people's plans. A lot of people wonder if a trust protects you. It does not, because assessors look through the trust when they do assessments. So it protects you not at all. And this is really crushing. But we can repeal it. We can put the law back the way it was, which was a parent can transfer a home of any value and a limited amount of other property, like a small apartment building, a small business, a duplex, a vacation cabin, up to a million dollars of assessed value of other property, plus the home of any value can be transferred to the kids with no change in the tax bill. That's what our initiative does. It puts that back. And it's at repealthedeathtax.com. We need a million signatures pretty quick, but there's still time. You just print the you print the petition right in your house. You can print it on any printer, on letter-sized paper. It's one page. And then you just fill it out, send it in, and we will get this done. And it's important because I want to make it clear. This has the potential of having a negative financial impact, a significant negative financial impact, on every single California homeowner that has any intention of passing on your principal residence, your home, to a son or a daughter or a grandchild someday. Um, th- this is something that we need to put a stop to immediately. More and more Californians, like my friend who inherited his mom's home in Daly City, are getting sticker shock to find out the kind of risk that they are facing. Because especially for those that say, you know, I, the home is in a neighborhood. Maybe I can get a couple of three grand in, in rent out of it. And at the current mom's current tax rate, you know, I'll do okay. It'll be enough income. I can put my kids through college, things of that sort. Nope. In comes the state and says, oh, yeah, no, no, 
that old tax rate that you used to have, that's going to double, triple, you'll be in the tens of thousands of dollars. And any notion of being able to use those resources to care for your family, meet family needs, educate a child, gone in a puff of smoke. Repealthedeathtax.com. That's repealthedeathtax.com. Let your friends know about it. Talk to people at church, down at the club, wherever you might go uh, uh, to hang out with friends and socialize. Let them know what's going on and let them know we've got a job ahead of us. It's quick that we reach, or it's urgent rather, that we reach that, that million signature number as quickly as possible to qualify for the ballot. So again, repealthedeathtax.com. That's repealthedeathtax.com. I want to thank Susan Shelley, President of Communications for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, for being with us tonight with that very critical update. Information, again, available on the web at hjta.org. Or most importantly, repealthedeathtax.com. You can download the petition and a printer at your home. Sign it. Get it off. Let's stand up and protect your family's financial heritage. Repealthedeathtax.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.